This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. It's week 56, still working from home for many in our world. Tim, I, as you know, was home this week because of COVID concerns. All clear, though, and looking forward to being back in the office on Look, Monday. I think it's fair to say, Carol, we've <laughs> all been there. It's that's really that's the reality in this day and age, right? If somebody has a fever, like happened with my son a few weeks mm-hmm. ago, yep. you know, that's a, that's a concern and you want to stay home from work, you want to get everyone tested, and uh, that's just the world we're living in. All right. So we're going to talk and we're going to have the latest on COVID this week. Also, we're going to have an in-depth profile of Bill Wong, whose Archegos Capital Management family office was hit with one of the biggest margin calls ever. It's this week's cover story. We just can't stop talking about it. We're also going to hear about how the cruise industry is rebounding from the pandemic. We'll do that with Arnold Donald, the president and CEO of Carnival. Yep, that was a fantastic interview, Carol. Plus, the Thank mayor you. of Miami is looking to entice Mr. Elon Musk and some other techies to Florida. He's saying, come on, enjoy the sun. We begin, <laughs> though, with a check on the virus and vaccine rollout. President Biden announcing this week he wants all American adults to be eligible for a coronavirus vaccine by April 19th. That's two weeks earlier than his previous goal, still cases and hospitalizations rising in some parts of the country. New variants of the virus are spreading and they're moving quickly. Cases are going back up. Hospitalizations are no longer declining. While deaths are still down, way down from January, they're going up in some places. A go-to voice on COVID, Dr. William Hazeltine. He's chairman and president of Access Health International and has founded more than a dozen biotech companies, including Human Genome Sciences. And he's also out with a new book that's very topical. It's called Variants, the Shape-Shifting Challenge of COVID-19. Lots to talk about. We began by asking about the vaccine rollout here in the United States. Some places are doing extremely well. Other place, places are doing badly. Some places the variants are surging. In other places, they're almost not detectable. Uh, and it's complicated with the vaccines because some places where the vaccine, the, the disease is surging, for example, Michigan, have a pretty good vaccine record. So it's a very complicated picture. And I think there's, uh, there's a lot of hope, but there's some cause for concern. So why do you think that's happening in, in places like Michigan right now that are actually doing relatively well when it comes to the rollout of the vaccine, but still seeing surges? I think that it's still pretty cold up there, not like it is down mm-hmm. here. And uh, people are going, staying inside, and they're not following the same uh, careful behavior they did before. One thing we now know is that restaurants and bars are really dangerous because you're with a lot of people and you don't have your mask on. If you're drinking, you can't drink through your mask, and you can't eat through your mask. And so it's not so much being outside in crowds, it's being inside, and I think that's what's could be driving it. Now, that isn't the only thing that drives it, because we were all surprised last summer when we saw this enormous bump in the summer, which came from people mixing. But then when it gets too hot, people stay inside to stay cool. So it's really our gregarious nature, trying to get together, loving to be together, sharing food, sharing conversation, which is a big problem for this uh, disease. We know a lot more about transmission than we did before. It really is transmitted by aerosols, small particles uh, that hang in the air sometimes for quite a while. And these new variants, some of them are much more infectious. So uh, a lot more particles are in the air, and each one of those particles is more likely to 
cause contagion. So those are all factors. But the vaccines are the positive side. And uh, it's, as I say, quite a mixed picture right now. Listen, we love talking to you. You know, you founded Human Genome Sciences. You were founder of Harvard Medical School's HIV and AIDS research departments. You understand this world better than most. And so do you foresee, Dr. Hazeltine, that we get to a point where it's just like the flu and we take a vaccine and we go on our merry way? Or is this something different? In one sense, it's going to be, I think, like the flu, where every year or every year and a half we take another shot to account for variants that are coming from somewhere, either our country or elsewhere. Uh, but in another sense, it's not like the flu because from the get-go, it's been pretty dangerous. Uh, one in 200 people have died. Some of these variants do a couple of things that are disturbing. They uh, kill maybe twice as many people as they did before. They kill younger people than they did before. Uh, and that's pretty worrisome. Uh, they're also, as I pointed out, more transmissible and evade our vaccines. So I think we may reach a steady state, uh, but I hope it's a steady state lower than it is with flu that in a good year kills 20,000 of us, a bad year kills 60,000 of us. It could be a lot worse. So we need to do better. There is hope, though, because there are drugs coming along now mm-hmm. that if you think you've been exposed, you'll be able, I think, in the future, maybe within a year or shorter, to take a pill and prevent yourself from getting infected. People should know Hmm. that there's now a pill like that for flu, that if you've been exposed to the flu, there's a pill called Zofluza that you can take and dramatically reduce your chance. So if you're in school or your kid comes home with the flu, the real flu, uh, that uh, you can uh, reduce your chances of getting it. And I hope uh, that within the relatively near future, we'll have drugs like that for Dr. Hazeltine, we continue to get news about the durability of this vaccine and also how it does in the face of variants. So far, is, have you seen anything that raises any red flags about the mutations of the virus being able to get past these vaccines that are available for emergency use authorization now? If the initial response is very strong, it will last longer and protect against more variants. Over time, it will decrease both in its protection against the original variant and increase, decrease a little bit faster against the other variants. Now, not all variants are created equally. Some are more resistant to neutralization or protection than are others. That's right. It's all about upping that antibody protection to make sure that we are protected mm-hmm. from the virus. That, of course, Dr. William Hazeltine, Chairman and President of Access Health International. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, containment of the virus. Key to the cruise industry setting sail in the U.S. We hear from the President and CEO of Carnival Corporation, Arnold Donald. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So this week, Carnival, the largest cruise line operator, reported that bookings are accelerating, reflecting pent-up demand for cruising, Tim, even as the industry remains, well, essentially on hold. Yeah, that's right. The CDC also came out this week and said that U.S. cruises could resume by midsummer with restrictions. That news coming after Carnival had threatened to relocate U.S. ships to other markets outside of the United States. So, Carol, it was perfect timing for your conversation with President and CEO Arnold Donald. This was for a Business Week Talks. Tell me about the CDC now uh, possibly offering to or allowing ships to be out and running by midsummer. 
What's changed with the CDC and what are the restrictions that are going to have to happen in order for that to uh, actually uh, come to fruition? Well, as you might recall, Carol, the CDC, I think last October issued a conditional sale order and they came out in phases. The first phase was bringing ships back into U.S. waters, primarily with minimal crew on board. Uh, we finished that phase of it in, mm-hmm. in terms of having in ourselves 30 ships that are currently in green status. They issued um, on April 2nd the next phase. Uh, frankly, what has been issued um, doesn't give us a specific time to be able to return um, and also is really not workable in the current form. But again, it just came out and we have an opportunity to discuss with the CDC and the administration um, to make certain that we do have something that's workable. And hopefully that would allow us to um, be able to sell uh, in July. And we're hoping it'll be something that's more in line with the advancements of vaccines that's occurred and the rapid advancement of the vaccines um, that the administration has been so successful with, as well as uh, the advancement in treatments and the advancements in rapid testing, none of which existed when the original conditional sale order was written. So we're hopeful that uh, we'll be able to meet with the administration and CDC and, and come up with something that's practical and, and will allow people to um, return to their choice of, of vacation travel and get a whole lot of Americans back to work. As you know, Carol, over mm-hmm. half a million people are impacted in the U.S. Um, in terms of jobs associated with the cruise industry outside of uh, the cruise companies themselves. Hey, one thing I got to ask you, Arnold, is how much of Carnival threatening to relocate their ships to other markets uh, outside the United States do you think was the reason for the CDC change? Because it was just a few days ago that they came out, you know, and we're still kind of holding firm. What happened? What were the conversations that maybe you you and other members of the cruise line industry had with the CDC? Uh, there, there was no threat or anything. It's just a practical reality that if we're not able to sail from the U.S., in some monsoon, uh, we would have to sail from elsewhere. And, and so some of the ships would home port. And a number of companies have already announced home porting ships that normally would have been sailing out of the U.S., um, home porting from different places in the Caribbean. But it's not a threat or anything. It's just a natural outcome of not being able to sail from the U.S. I'm not sure anything has changed. Uh, perhaps it has Uh, I haven't heard directly from the CDC or the administration anything has changed. I think that they genuinely believe the information they put out might allow some limited sailing as early as July. Uh, And so we'll have to discuss that with them. You know, our timelines don't quite match up with that, but maybe we don't understand everything. So the CDC has a job to do. They're trying to do their job. I think as long as we work together with the CDC and the administration, we can all get crews you know, back soon and we can get it back in safe where it's in the interest of public health. And we can have all those half a million workers no longer suffer from not being able to earn a wage and, and, and do their jobs in the ports and the various travel agents and all the other things that are connected to, to crews. Well, Arnold, does it feel like that there's a more constructive conversation with the CDC right now? And I ask that because I do also wonder, is there kind of a last straw for you that if the CDC in a couple of months, isn't clear about what it will take to get ships, uh, U.S. home-ported ships, you know, up and running. Is there a point where you're going to say, okay, I'm done, and we're going to move ships abroad? We have nine brands, Carol. So mm-hmm. about 59 of our 90 ships are not under the conditional sale order. They don't, you know, sail in the U.S. anyway. And so there we are already active um, in sailing. And we've announced sailings in um, in the UK, we've announced sailings in Greece, um, AIDA, our German brands already sailing from the Canary Islands, all on a limited basis at this point, but is movement in the right direction. 
And um, we're optimistic that we'll be able to do the same here and, and, and continue the dialogue with the CDC. I think one of the big issues here is um, the relative mentality or, or, around risk. Uh, mm-hmm. So today, you could board a plane, fly to a country, get on a cruise ship and sail, fly back from that country and come back to the United States. You have to do certain testing, et cetera, but you can do that. And today, even if vaccinated, you can't get on a cruise ship in the U.S. And that's whether you're vaccinated or not in terms of what you could do um, from the U.S. Uh, going somewhere else to get on a cruise ship. So I, and if you look at other travel and entertainment sectors, um, you talked about spring breakdown in, in Miami, um, or you look at um, arenas where people are starting to be able to attend sporting events, restaurants, hotels, resorts, air travel. Uh, you know, there's a, a level of risk management and mitigation. And so we would like to just be treated similarly to the rest of the travel and tourism sector. Um, and we also obviously have enhanced protocols already in place versus many of those sectors. Well, does it uh, not medical make Medical screening, medical centers on board, et cetera. Forgive me for interrupting, but does it not make sense to you, Arnold, um, that on for planes, you know, people get on a plane and they're sitting right next to each other. Um, there seems to be kind of different requirements for people in different parts of uh, the tourism industry. And yet, you folks are still waiting, you know, to be able to get up and running. Does it seem, is this disparate treatment fair in your view? I think everyone is trying to do what they think is best for public health. And I think um, together we can work and find a way forward. I mean, it's true. You get on a plane. Some people say, well, you're only on a plane for a few hours. But you are sitting right next to someone. Before you got on the plane, you were in an airport terminal. Before you were on the airport terminal, you were in some kind of transportation. Before that, you came from somewhere. When you land, you go to another ter- airport terminal, and then you get in an automobile or a bus or whatever you get on for transport, and then you go places. You might go to a restaurant. You might stay in a hotel. You may go to a resort and, and all of that activity. And a cruise is a city at sea. And so to compare us just to an airplane ride is, is inappropriate, and to compare us um, just to a hotel stay is inappropriate. Uh, and so I, I think the reality is look at the evidence. There's over 400,000 people that have sailed um, to date in Europe, fewer than 50 cases of COVID all handled seamlessly without disruption. Tim, we are watching what's going on in Europe, especially as passengers get back on those big cruise ships. Yeah, as we do try to make our way out of this pandemic, Mm -hmm. that's something that we keep doing, right? Looking to other countries, other areas of the world to see how things have worked out as sort of evidence as to potentially how they'll work out here. Right, exactly. How we find our way back. That's Arnold Donald, the president and CEO of Carnival. Catch the entire extended interview in an upcoming podcast, along with a Business Week Talks in the magazine. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Still to come, a conversation with PayPal co-founder and a firm CEO, Max Levchin, on how stimulus payments are impacting consumer spending. I wonder if they're spending on cruises. Maybe. Maybe. Or stocks? Or stocks, exactly. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. When it comes to understanding the startup world and how online and technology are reinventing so much of what we do and how we do it, Tim, one voice we like to check in with is 
a co-founder of PayPal. And who was also chairman of Yelp for 11 years from its founding days, as well as founder and CEO of Slide. That one was sold to Google. We're talking about Max Levchin, who today is founder and CEO of a firm. It's a company that offers installment plans to online shoppers and a great window into how consumers may be spending some of those stimulus dollars. From my point of view, the most important thing I care about is the health of the consumer on a financial side of things. And we've seen, and you know, much thanks to the action by Federal Reserve and just government in, in, in various places, there's just a tremendous amount of what I would consider to be good consumer behavior. There's a lot of savings, and this is, you know, to, to me, that means people are saving up to really go out and have a wonderful vacation that they've held back on. And, uh, you know, we're seeing conversations with our partners, places like Verba and Picasa and, you know, et cetera, um, on the sort of overall health from the debt-to-income ratio side of things. Americans have paid off almost $83 billion in credit card debts during the pandemic. So, you know, they, they put some of those stimulus checks to, again, from my point of view, the right um, the, the, the right thing to do. Uh, and then just the overall consumer confidence is really high. It jumped uh to a one-year high, which is you know, maybe maybe from a, a low point. But a year ago, we weren't really taking these lockdowns seriously. And at this point, I think people have, they, they've suffered and they're really looking forward to reopening. Well, let me ask you something, because your company, you know, offers installment plans, right, to online shoppers um, and lets people kind of pay over time. Are you seeing less of that because people are, are using more of, whether it's stimulus dollars or just, you know, savings in general to pay down their debt? Can you make any kind of conclusions along those lines? You know, we have seen exceptional growth uh, in the last year, and yeah. so I, I, I would not characterize it as seeing less. I, I do think that people are using their stimulus dollars sensibly. Uh, we, we have a savings feature that we offer to our customers, and we've seen influx of savings increases as the government sent checks to consumers. And so I think that there's a sort of fairly visible correlation there. Uh, the thing that's really interesting about kind of the effect of the pandemic on a long-term state of e-commerce and, and just shopping in general, is we've trained a whole generation of people that were just not going to go online. Folks like my mom, who is in her 70s, who you know, enjoys her offline shopping. It's, you know, she, she's now very well versed in the idea of boxes coming to her door. Mm-hmm. And so we brought in a bunch of e-commerce shoppers, and I think they're here to stay. And I think what's really going to be required of us in the buy now, pay later industry and, and broadly sort of service providers and payments, we have to meet this new consumer behavior with buy online and pick up in store or return in store, exchange in store. There are all these mixed omni-channel modalities that are suddenly going to be much more common, much more important. Yeah, I have to say, too, in retail, I mean, I look for places where there's lots of ease. I can, if I buy online, can I easily return it either through they're taking care of it or they're taking care of shipping or I can drop it off at one of their storefronts. And, you know, we've talked about omni-channel for a long time, but I think now I totally get it of what it really needs to be in order for it to be incredibly productive. Exactly. You have to be met where you want to be met, and especially as we're still sort of coming back to, well, is it safe? Yes, maybe I have my my half vaccine, or how safe am I? I don't really want to go hang around in a big showroom, but if I buy online and I need to get rid of it, it has to be very quick. I don't want to repackage it and take Mm -hmm. it to the post office. I I need to um, bring it back to the doorstep. 
Yeah. So I, I think that, that's, a, that's a big, important change. I have to say, I think I know three or four people in my orbit who, you know, had tried to schedule a wedding several times um, <laughs> over the last year and had to keep, you know, postponing it. Or people who got married but said, listen, we're going to do a party as soon as things open up. So a lot of that's going on. Tell me about your company. Uh, here you are nine years in, three months roughly since you IPO'd. You know, how has your company changed and evolved along with what consumers need or, or what the market needs? You know, so it, it's actually a very rewarding moment. It just literally happened. It was on Pi Day, uh, March 14, <laughs> is our birthday. And um, you know, on the one hand, everything has changed. You know, nine years ago, the idea of biopulator just wasn't a thing. People didn't really believe it. They thought credit cards were just fine. And I had this sort of a very strongly worded point of view that the credit system is broken. We need to provide a more flexible, more transparent alternative. People do not want to be confused by their interest rate. They want to know exactly when and how they will get out of paying you know, their, 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 their payments. And so we, we made this mission you know, to create financial products that improve lives. And uh, that has stayed exactly the same. And it, it's really awesome to just be able to look back and like, yeah, we've been doing the same exact thing while evolving and changing everything for nine years straight. And it feels like we're probably 5% in, maybe mm. 3% into what we we're trying to accomplish. Yeah. So it, 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 it's one of these things where it's, it's the longest project I've ever done in my entire life. I've been starting companies since college and I have no interest in slowing down or, or, or God forbid, pausing. So it, it, it's really fun. That's PayPal co-founder and a firm CEO, Max Levchin. So Tim, as consumers get ready to spend some SPACs, a few already putting money to work. We're going to hear from the chairman of Rotor Acquisition on its deal this week. Yeah, that was a really fun conversation. That's next on Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Someone we like to turn to on everything from trade and politics to Wall Street dealmaking and more is Stefan Selig. He's managing partner at Bridge Park Advisors, also the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade at the U.S. Department of Commerce. That was during the Obama administration. Well, this time around, we wanted to talk to him all about a story reported by Bloomberg News. It's about Sarcos Robotics, planning to go public through a reverse merger with the blank check company Rotor Acquisition. Stefan is also the chairman of Rotor and told us all about Rotor and why Sarcos? Rotor Acquisition is a company that uh, we formed at the beginning of the year. I have two partners, Brian Finn, who's the former president of Credit Suisse in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, who I've known since 1984, and John Howard, who's a storied private equity investor, uh, was the CEO and founder of the merchant banking business at Bear Stearns, and we raised $276 million uh, to do a deal um, where in, for a company that was going to be positively impacted by innovation and technology to transform what historically had been an old economy business. And we identified Sarcos Robotics, which is a leader in highly dexterous mobile industrial robotic systems that um, uh, enables the workforce of the future with solutions that enhance productivity and reduce operational injuries and equalize employment opportunities for jobs around the world that do not otherwise lend themselves to automation. So we are extraordinarily excited about this opportunity um, uh, and to present it to our shareholders. I mean, I'm looking at a picture of the Sarcos Robotics Guardian Exo Exoskeleton, and it looks like an exoskeleton, like something out of a superhero movie. Or aliens. (laughs) Yeah, it does. I mean, this is something that is designed to, to help people lift heavy objects, right? 
yes. Um, what's important, Tim, is it's not designed to replace humans, like a number of the robots you see in, in automotive factories and in other applications, but rather to augment humans. And as a result of that, um, the technology has been um, uh, extraordinarily well received by um, commercial and military customers uh, alike for some of the reasons I suggested. What is the process of identifying a company like Sarcos Robotics when you have this criteria that you use for identifying the type of company that you want to acquire through a SPAC? Well, you know, um, we came together, the three of us, um, with a hundred years of Wall Street experience and um, uh, broad and deep relationships. And um, one of those relationships um, with two of my partners was with Sarcos. And frankly, we think that's what differentiates some of the SPAC sponsors from others as this capital markets tool has continued to evolve. Um, and frankly, um, what we think differentiates us um, is not only our ability to um, uh, negotiate attractive acquisitions, um, but to identify um, proprietary opportunities based on that network. Well, and I, and I guess, you know, the question is, because, and we'll talk a little bit more broadly about SPACs, um, Stefan, but did you guys think about a lot of other companies or look at a lot of other companies, or I'm just curious about the process? Yeah, well, um, Sarcos had engaged two financial advisors to run a process, which mm. roughly coincide with when our uh, SPAC was raised. So we were kind of thrown into the soup, so to speak. Um, early um, uh, in um, uh, in our time frame for identifying a target. So um, we had the opportunity to look at um, a number of opportunities, um, uh, but once the Sarco opportunity became actionable um, because of their own deliberations and process that their board decided on, we frankly jumped on it. This is, I'm just looking at pictures of, of the, what's available on the market for this. Um, just talk briefly about the, the go-to-market strategy with, with how you're thinking about getting this to companies. It seems like right now the, the cost is really high. You're going to lease it, or the company, I should say, Sarcos Robotics will lease it for $100,000 a year, uh, and then eventually the cost is, is, going, is expected to get lower. Yeah, I mean, the cost to manufacture will go down dramatically as we start to get to scale. The costs that you're referring to, Tim, now are high only because we're in the kind of alpha and beta um, production stages, so we're doing that ourselves as opposed to the, the global contract manufacturers that we will utilize um, once we get to scale. But um, uh, your intuition is actually the opposite of what um, we believe to be the case, which is this will make um, uh, production and manufacturing and um, uh, decrease costs for our, cons for our customers because it will allow one worker to do what two, three, or four workers can do without this, um, uh, without this technology. So just think about it. Um, a normal worker, guidelines are you shouldn't be listening, lifting stuff that's more than 30 pounds, and when you have to lift something that's more, more than 30 pounds, that means you need two, three, or four workers. We're here. Um, you can use the exoskeleton, can lift up to 200 pounds, and frankly feel like you're lifting just five pounds. Um, and as a result of that, um, the cost benefits to um, uh, the cost benefits to our potential customers are significant. Let alone the benefits around um, worker safety, um, the amount of productivity that is lost in the global economy 
because of workplace injuries, are just extraordinary. I do also wonder, too, um, Stefan, if it allows older workers to, you know, maybe take a job that they wouldn't normally be able to because they're able to tap into this kind of equipment. So that's exactly right, Carol. And it's not older workers taking these jobs as much as workers being able to stay on their Mm -hmm. jobs and not actually age out because of the wear and tear that um, uh, their bodies will take in some of these more demanding jobs, let alone having younger people who are going to be attracted to these jobs because, frankly, they're less dangerous and more interesting and more fun um, rather than just sitting in front of a a, a screen. Hey, just one more question on Sarcos, um, Stefan. I do wonder how much of the business going forward will be reliant on government contracts? It's a great question, um, uh, Carol. We have uh, very strong relationships with the U.S. military. Um, However, all of our projections that um, we have shared with investors are 100% dependent on uh, commercial uh, relationships um, and not dependent on government contracts because, frankly, government contracts are are far less certain um, uh, and subject to uh, much more variability. And so we really built a business plan around commercial applications, although we think there is going to be tons of uh, military and other government uses for the products. Hey, Stefan, I want to talk trade with you because, of course, you were former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade, or are former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade at the U.S. Department of Commerce during the Obama administration. We are still in a trade war with China right now. I think a, a lot of people forget that. Um, how do we get past this and into the what is the sort of next relationship or phase of the relationship with China look like? You know, I'm not sure, Tim, we do get past it. Um, Hmm. uh, I remember telling Carol, um, you know, a few months ago that, you know, it's almost kind of like we're in a challenged marriage with China and we're kind of forced to live together because of the kids. And I think, frankly, that continues to be the analogy. And our relations, you know, I think are going to continue to remain um, fraught. Um, The tone may change or will change under the Biden administration and clearly will be less belligerent. I think clearly as a tactical matter, we're likely to coordinate much more with our friends and allies. But I don't think the fundamental underpinning of these tensions is going to go away anytime soon. So let me ask you, I love that. I do remember that. I think it made us chuckle when you said it, but this whole idea of being forced to live live together because of the kids. Who's going to have the better house, China or the United States? (laughs) I ask that because of the infrastructure spend that President Biden is now trying to do. Stefan, we had a great conversation with our Andy Brown of Bloomberg New Economy that the whole idea of you can't fight you know, the way we used to fight with our with maybe our foes, that modern weapon, weaponry now is really about um, improving, you know, your economy. That's how you fight kind of in the, in the strongest way. And doing that is by building up your infrastructure. So I wonder your thoughts on that. So I, I guess, Carol, I'd make there was two points to that interesting question. The first is, which side do you want to take? And mm. frankly, I don't want to um, uh, sound Pollyannish, but you know, you have to bet on the U.S. We have the strongest economy, the most innovative economy. We have rule of law. We have the broadest and deepest capital markets. We are energy self-sufficient. We have um, an extraordinary workforce. We have the best secondary education, university education system in the world. And, you know, those are all things that are the envy of the world. As I went around, not just as under undersecretary, but as a banker for many years, mm-hmm. people want to do business with American companies and want to do business in America. And that's not going to change um, 
uh, that's not going to change anytime soon. Great perspective from Stefan Selig, Tim, because listen, this is a guy who's been at the table when he was working for the Obama administration, understood the dynamics, the trade, the commerce between the United States and China. Yeah, and he knows what it takes to get something done in Washington Mm -hmm. or when something won't get done. Exactly. Stefan Selig, he's managing partner at Bridge Park Advisors. And that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovec. Much more ahead in the next hour, including a profile of Bill Wong, whose Archegos Capital Management family office was hit with one of the biggest margin calls ever. Yeah, big one. We'll also hear from the mayor of Miami. He is looking to create Silicon Valley, the Miami version. Plus, the CEO of Jackson Family Wines describes the pandemic's impact on the wine industry. Yeah, you all know I love when we get a little (laughs) wine into our show. All of that to come in the next hour of Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including how the mayor of Miami is trying to lure Elon Musk to the magic city. Plus, after a year of the pandemic, we check in with the CEO of Jackson Family Wines on the impact and on what feels like the job offer of a lifetime. I kind of want to apply for this. Hey, you should do it. (laughs) And leave you? No way. (laughs) All right. First up, the cover story this week, which already feels like the biggest Wall Street story of the year. It's about the greatest trader you've never heard of who then went on to lose $20 billion. Yeah, it's a profile of Bill Wong, whose Archegos Capital Management family office was hit with one of the biggest margin calls ever. We spoke with Businessweek editor Joel Weber and finance reporter Sri Natarajan. The incredible aspect of this story is, forget the second leg of his career, forget what happened with the blow-up of this investment firm. Just the fact that he was able to parlay more than $200 million of initial funds in his family office, Archegos, and translated to translated to over twenty billion in just seven or eight years. That is a, a remarkable story by itself. That is near hundred times returns. That is not usual, and that is why we call him the greatest trader you've never heard of. But then, what follows is even more astonishing. You you've had a situation where, in a matter of days, all that wealth goes up in smoke because these were big wages he's made in companies he believed in with increasing amount of borrowed money from banks. And when those bets went against him, the banks moved to make sure that they didn't lose their skin. And in the process, his capital went up in smoke. I think one of the biggest surprises that came out of all of this is his commitment to God and the role of that in his life. Shri, talk to us about that and some of the things you found out. Oh, that, uh, that's just the other aspect of it that makes this such a remarkable tale to tell. When you think of a successful hedge fund trader, uh, someone who runs a big firm, you can put all sorts of stereotypes on them and almost everyone will fit one of the buckets. Bill Huang cannot be confined to any one of those. He's not your standard uh, hedge fund, flashy lifestyle person. He's not one that is playing a big role in on, like setting the national political agenda. This is someone who came from really humble means. His father was a pastor in Korea. 
uh, they moved to Las Vegas. Uh, father died within a few months of uh, being posted to the Vegas church, but his uh, widowed mother took care of him after that, put him through college and uh, MBA, but she went on to become a missionary in Mexico. His brother went on to become a missionary in Tijuana, Mexico, and Bill Huang really saw himself as a missionary with means. He was on Wall Street. He had the money, but he believed that all of that was to be put to use to spread the word of the gospel. And, you know, some people would say, wait, is that just a cover to, uh, you know, we don't quite understand how that's possible. But in, in, in the last uh, two weeks, the number of people we've spoken to who, who've known him well, who work with him, who work with him even now, they insist this this is who he is. That's his life. And as much as all of us are animated by what has happened, uh, the equally astonishing thing for me has been everyone who knows him tells us, you know, despite everything that's going on, he has not changed one bit. He's the mm. same Bill Huang today as he was yesterday. And I, I just find even that aspect to be quite uh, remarkable. Okay, Sri, um as fascinating as uh, the God aspect and the religion aspect and everything is, like I ultimately told you, it's the, the thing that people are going to care about here is the money. Uh, and how do you lose twenty billion dollars in two days exactly? Well, let's let's start with saying by saying that it's not easy to do that. You could try very hard, but most people will not be able to pull it off. But uh, when you when you peel back the portfolio and you and you say again, we still don't have the complete picture. We're piecing this together from multiple conversations we've had with bankers and other people in the industry uh, and people who knew and know how Archegos operated to understand what might have happened. But just a simple way to look at it is, if he had $20, he would go borrow another $80 from a bank, which in this case, many banks across Wall Street and elsewhere were eager to give him that kind of leverage. Uh, you suddenly have $100 of capital to bet on a share like Viacom. While the shares are going up, a Viacom share that goes up from, say, $100 to $150, suddenly your own personal wealth, if you just look at the math behind it, goes from $20 to $70 because everything else is borrowed money. But that's you know, more than tripling of your assets, even though the underlying stock is up only 50%. But that's what happened. He was he was making right bets. His capital was growing. He was plowing it back into the same bets because that was his level of conviction in the stocks that he picked out. His belief that those were valuable investments and he right. was going to stick with it come what may. Then when I- it moved the other way, that's the risk of leverage. That's Bloomberg's finance reporter, Sri Natarajan, and Business Week editor, Joel Weber. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week from a trader leveraging too much to DoorDash drivers leveraging their ability to say no to increase their pay. It's called the hashtag decline now movement. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So, Tim, I don't know if you've noticed, but we have become a world of algorithms. Oh, I've noticed. <laughs> I've noticed, too. And in the world of delivery drivers, those algorithms now are being used to increase pay. And you talked about this on Quick Take. Yeah, we did. So over at DoorDash, there's a 40,000 driver movement uh, to use the company's software against it. So the online forum is known as hashtag decline now. It was co-created by Dave Levy, 
We caught up with Dave on Quick Take. Listen to what he had to say. We started this movement with six to eight drivers in our local zone on conference call, bouncing offers around to each other, okay, watching them go up and then grabbing them when feasible, effectively turning low ball offers into higher offers. We, we basically give DoorDash two choices, okay? Either add base pay to the low offers or cancel them because frankly, we're concerned about the driver, and we honestly don't care if the offer's not feasible to begin with. We're out there on the street trying to feed families and pay bills here. So that was Dave uh-huh. Levy. He's the co-founder of the forum that's called Hashtag Decline Now for DoorDash Drivers. Joshua Brewstein is a technology writer at Bloomberg Businessweek, joins me on the phone from here in New York, joins Carol and me right now to talk all about this story. It's in the latest edition of Bloomberg Business Week. DoorDash drivers game the algorithm to increase pay. Joshua, how are these drivers able to to do this, essentially beat DoorDash at its own game? Yeah, it's an interesting model. DoorDash's algorithm, like most of the delivery or gig economy algorithms, are based on the idea that the individual actions of people will eventually find the right price for a particular service. So if a bunch of drivers are turning down um, a delivery at a certain price, the algorithm will naturally adjust by offering other drivers a little bit more. And so if you have a coordinated effort to say, we won't take anything that pays us only $3, then in theory, the algorithm will just stop offering those and start pushing um, the price up naturally. Does it work? So it's hard to tell if it works in the aggregate. <laughs> um, the the uh, the guys who founded the Decline Now group that is trying to do this, uh, they operate in a relatively small market in the Le- Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania. So you can actually get it's easier to have a workers co- like a large proportion of the workers coordinate in a market like that. It might be harder in a place like New York where you just have so many people making individual decisions. Um, so maybe smaller markets would be a better play for this strategy. So what's so interesting about this is is that it works until it, it doesn't work, right? It works until somebody else claims that for a lower price. And if somebody does that, then then obviously they can make that work financially, right? The driver actually sees that as, as a worthwhile delivery, right? Right. Well, you know, can someone make it work financially is really, you know, their own decision. Like right. someone might be willing to take a low, a lower price ride for whatever reason. Um, and, you know, the, um, that's why this group has a challenge in trying to keep everyone from taking these low rides, um, which creates an interesting uh, dynamic within the group. <laughs> you have people complaining of, uh, of bullying, of, you know, not listening to the reasons that someone might want to take a lower, a lower fare. Um, and it creates some tension amongst the drivers. One other thing to keep in mind is that DoorDash, uh, the DoorDash algorithm is not like a force of nature. <laughs> it, it's, it's a piece of software that's controlled by the company itself. So presumably, if the drivers were really moving the needle in a way that DoorDash didn't like, it could recode the way that, dri- that rides are, um, are assigned. And we might not know that. The drivers might not know that. True. Because DoorDash just doesn't have to show you exactly how it works. So does this mean, does this story mean that, that DoorDash, there's, there's enough demand for DoorDash to, to raise the rates that it's paying drivers 
or is the fact that they are getting people to deliver around the country based on on where the fees start they don't actually need to do that yeah i think that what we've seen up until this point is that the there are enough people willing to take um jobs for a low enough rate of pay that many drivers feel like they can't make a living because that is what DoorDash can get away with paying. And we should say with what DoorDash can get away with paying, what Uber can get away with paying, what all these companies can get away with paying. And you'd really have to have a, um, like a really coordinated effort to get uh, everyone refusing to really force the companies to change what they're doing. I feel like there's a bigger issue here, too. And I think we, we talk about this a lot. We know regulators are looking at it. Just this whole idea of the gig economy and what people are paid. I mean, can they really make a living? Um, and I and because like earlier on, Uber drivers, I remember having conversations. They were making a lot of money, you know, and it's all changed as more people have gotten involved. But I feel like that's a bigger overarching part of this story. Yeah, I think that one um, thing that's sort of floating in the background in this story is that DoorDash can decide what it pays. um, And Mm -hmm. there is an increasing push for maybe some wage floors that aren't imposed by trying to game an algorithm, but by putting laws in place, by putting rules in place to govern this new, um, this new corner of the economy, um, because the companies don't seem to be paying what a lot of people think would be a reasonable wage. Um, on their own. And also what, you know, is kind of when compared to the minimum wage is oftentimes significantly below that. Where do where do tips and, and gratuities come into this conversation, especially with regard to DoorDash? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, DoorDash has had controversy over tips in the past. Yeah. Um, it's had to admit that it was not giving the drivers their tips in an appropriate way. And one thing the company has done in this particular instance is to not always tell the driver how much they are going to be tipped. Usually when you, when you place an order, you actually tip in advance um, on a lot of these platforms. So, you know, DoorDash might offer you $3. The person who's, who you're delivering to is offering $2. But DoorDash will just say, we'll give you $3, and this person will give you a tip. But you don't know how much it is. So it tries to, um, it's trying to complicate the idea of saying, you know, this is the minimum amount I'll take because you don't actually know how much you'll make on any specific ride. Something we're going to continue to talk about and hear about, of course, is how gig workers are treated in this economy. In this case, these DoorDash workers are taking matters into their own hands. Yeah, it's an important issue, and I I agree this conversation will continue. That's Bloomberg News technology writer Joshua Brewstein, who edited that story. And be sure to check out Tim's interview with one of the co-founders of Hashtag Decline Now. That's Dave Levy. He caught up with Tim on Quick Take. Yeah, check it out at Bloomberg.com slash QT. Still to come on Bloomberg Business Week, it's wine time. We're going to hear from the CEO of Jackson Family Wines about their path forward and on the ultimate job offer. Free wine involved, Carol? Mm-hmm. Sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> this is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. 
California wine industry, Tim, you know a lot about this. It's faced fires, drought, then the pandemic in the last couple of years. It hasn't been easy. And Rick Tigner, he's president and CEO of Jackson Family Wines. He stopped by to tell us how it's all going and to talk about a job offer that may be too good to refuse. Yeah, you might have heard about this one because it absolutely went viral. So, Carol, you started the conversation with a question that we've been asking most of our guests. What has the last year been like? Yeah, obviously, when the, the pandemic hit last March, you know, no one knew what that was going to be. And I think everyone thought it was going to, you know, end relatively quick, but uh, it had its challenges. And, uh, you know, we, we've uh, been resilient as a company. We've survived. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've grown in areas that we probably wouldn't have grown in, uh, like the digital you know, part of our space. People had to channel shift. Right. And uh, then, then this opportunity came up to create a promotion around this really good job campaign, campaign which we did about 10 years ago. And uh, it had good results back then. But uh, we thought, what a, couldn't be a better time right now with unemployment as to be what it is. You know, there are people out there that need to kind of pivot in their current careers or get a new career. So we thought it was a really good time to relaunch the really good job campaign. Well, you know, it's funny. When I was doing some research and reading in for this, I was like, wait a minute. This looks like they have done this before. Tell us about your really good job contest because uh, we were reading about it and talking in the newsroom and we're like, I kind of want to sign up for this. <laughs> you know what? It's a, it's a four-month-long you know, nationwide search for a person who's actually looking to have their ultimate dream job in the wine country. And uh, what I would say is, you know, the, jo- the sky's the limit, you know. The last time we did it, we were kind of looking for a social media kind of influencer type of person, and we had some really good results. Now what we're looking for is really a person who, you know, wants to really either get into the wine space, which is a lot of different jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, the sky's the limit. So some people, to give you an example, mm-hmm. let's say you're in the restaurant business and your restaurant's closed last year, right? You could come out to California in the Really Good Job campaign and be on our culinary team, right? And walk out of here as, as one of our chefs or one of our, 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 our in our culinary program. Maybe you're in sales. You may, maybe you want to be in hospitality. You could get that job. Every day is going to have a new opportunity. But obviously you're going to start off learning about how to make wine with our winemaker which will be fun, mm-hmm. and then you're going to be able to walk the vineyards and understand really how grapes are grown, right? Because ultimately, right. that's where the that's where the there's a there there when it comes to making wine, and then you know we'll follow that person's passion. So we're very excited about the applicants, and and really for me, I think I said this to somebody the other day. To me, it's like a pebble in the pebble in the pond. Mm. We put a pebble out there, and the ripples have been amazing. The response has been incredible. Uh, we've gotten more. Yeah applicants that we would have thought already and we're just getting started so we're super super excited well and it's interesting and and um i love this whole idea that like you're kind of open to you know what the job might be but it also comes with a ten thousand dollar per month salary if i if i have this right rent-free living for a year and all the wine you want to (laughs) (laughs) this is like a win-win-win like kind of the icing on the cake the the free wine but, uh, but, but, but imagine you're out there and you're either underemployed, like let's say you make you know eighty thousand or ninety thousand or forty thousand, mm-hmm. opportunity to make ten thousand dollars a month, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what, you know, what's a big expense when you make money? Rent or mortgage, right? So now you can live rent free at a really nice place in Hillsburg, California, and then on top of that, you can drink well, which in a, in a moderation, by the way. Mm-hmm. You give the person like thirty cases of wine, like three hundred and sixty bottles. So. Uh, so super excited about the whole program. I'm glad to see you're excited too. Well, I think it's just clever. And I think, you know, we talk so much, Rick, about 
especially in this past year, and we've talked a lot about inequities and diversity and inclusion, the need for it. You know, we've seen all the research. We've all talked about it over and over about the importance of having a diverse workforce. But I, and, and part of doing that and creating an inclusive workforce is widening out your labor pools. And I feel like this is kind of a way of doing it, like bringing somebody who you might not normally go after. It's amazing. You know, as a company, we have a DNI task force, as an example. But, but, but imagine as we add somebody to our to our to our team, is this? You know, teamwork's important to me. Is that what I'm hoping is they bring information to us? They teach us. People have different backgrounds and different histories and have different education levels. I'm excited about the people who we bring on board. They'll be able to teach us about how to become a better company. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm all about open door policy as a CEO. We have all kinds of ideas about open door weeks for, for CEOs and the rest of our executive staff. But you, you are right. At a, at a time when all of these you know, initiatives are out there, you know, what a better time to create this campaign. So it is, you know, it's not, it's not marketing genius because we did it before. And mm-hmm. it, we probably just stole somebody's idea back then, too. <laughs> uh, trying wines on a Thursday afternoon, Carol. Not that bad of a way to end the workday. That's when I feel pretty lucky about my job. <laughs> just going to put that out there. Well, you can't do it every day, but that one yeah. was a special one. That was Rick Tigner, president and CEO of Jackson Family Wines. Still to come on Bloomberg Business Week, the mayor of Miami also looking to attract workers. We're going to tell you about his quest to lure techies from Silicon Valley to Florida. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. If you think of tech hubs, you often think of Silicon Valley on the West Coast, Silicon Alley in New York City, cities like Raleigh, North Carolina, Cambridge, Massachusetts. The mayor of one southeast city, though, is looking to add his to this list. Well, he and his city of Miami, the subject of a story in Bloomberg Business Week magazine this week. Carol caught up with the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, and started by asking about the tweet that got the ball rolling. You have been looking forward when it comes to your city of Miami, looking to make it a high-tech city. Tell us about the viral moment back in December when a Silicon Valley venture capitalist tweeted about moving to Miami from Silicon Valley who asked, okay guys, hear me out. What if we move Silicon Valley to Miami? You were responded i did i said how can i help (laughs) and frankly it was it's been a 10-year passion project for me i'm a fairly young mayor i was a fairly young elected official when i was elected i was 32 um i was 40 when i was elected mayor Uh, so i I understand and i understood uh, and i've understood for 10 years that the future of our economy as a as as a country as a as a as a world is tech based that is inescapable from my perspective that is nonpartisan from my perspective that's just a reality and the quicker that cities embrace that reality and start fashioning their economies around that reality the better off and the more equitable cities that we're going to have in America and so that has been our goal our mission the how can i help tweet was sort of a lightning in the bottle moment where we propelled ourselves from someone sort of on the outer range of the conversation to literally the city that's most talked about right now in the world on tech. Whether, we, whether anyone thinks that we're going to overtake Silicon Valley tomorrow or not, no one can dispute the fact that everybody right now is talking about Miami tech. It is the hottest uh, thing, and it's been hot since that December 4th tweet, which is, I think, uh, an accomplishment in and of itself because right. you know we live in a 24-hour news cycle where news changes quickly and people move on to the next story. And, you know, to, to keep and maintain the attention of the city for over four months of the country 
right. over four months in the world really is, is a significant achievement. Right. But talk is one thing. Action is another. So tell me about, you know, you've had conversations or you've been tweeting with Elon Musk. Um, what's the plan? What's the specific responses? What's the specific actions that maybe are coming from either venture capitalists or investors to help create your mission? Look at the deliverables just in the last four months. Uh, we have... Uh, through our DDA program, created 850 jobs just in the last four months. That's uh, with an average pay of over $100,000. That's over $85 million of economic uh, activity just from one program in one section of the city. We had SoftBank that created a $100 million Miami initiative for companies that are going to be built here in Miami or people that are moving to Miami. We had the author of that tweet, Delian, uh, who uh, helps run the Founders Fund, which is probably the most prominent VC firm in San Francisco, open an office in Miami. So you have Founders Fund led by Delian, led by Peter Thiel, led by, uh, led by Keith Rebois, who were sort of far, part of that PayPal um, mm-hmm. uh, group Mafia. of people that created pay, <laughs> pay, well, you could say it. I, I won't say it. I won't use that word just because it's Sorry. so derogatory. But, I know, I know. but yes, you know, the PayPal group of, of, of people that, that started PayPal, you know, and then, and then having, you know, conversations with Elon Musk about how do we look towards the new future of transportation and transportation technology. I mean, if you just look at those deliverables alone, right. you've seen that well, we've radically changed Miami in, in four months. Have you talked with Elon Musk directly or has it been all through tweets? Yes. You have? No, no, I've talked to him directly. Um, we a phone call. We, we spoke by phone for about 30 minutes. Um, he was excited about the prospect of Miami being his second, quote-unquote, second customer for the boring company. Um, I went out to Las Vegas and saw the boring company's boring tunnels in person right. um, and was just blown away. I took technical experts from the city, from the county, and they were blown away by the technology and by the ability to do it at a fraction of the cost. Well, but how do you do it? Because, I mean, there's things that you've tried to do. Listen, we all were talking about it at the newsroom when you um, put out a resolution to potentially pay some of your municipal workers in Bitcoin, except taxes in the cryptocurrency, maybe invest city funds in it. The Miami City Commission, though, only agreed to look further into the matter at some unknown future date. It feels like it's going to be an uphill battle. Will it? And are you still working to make Miami a crypto hub? Oh, absolutely. And no, I don't think it's an uphill battle at all. I think it was a four to one vote. I mean, in politics, you rarely ever get a unanimous vote. Uh, you know, one of the commissioners wanted to sort of dilute uh, the resolution a little bit. And look, you know, they're, they're both commissioners that are over 70 years old. I understand that for them, it's something that maybe uh, they don't understand quite as much as someone who's in their 40s or 30s or 20s. So, yeah, there's definitely an education process. There's definitely a collaboration process when you're dealing with a council. Um, you know, and a mayor-council relationship, that's always, uh, uh, you know, whether it's crypto or whether it's uh, right. t- garbage cans. I mean, it, it, it's always something that's complicated and tenuous, and, and you have to work on it continually, and you have to gain people's trust issue by issue. So I, I, I think a four-to-one vote was a resounding vote right. uh, to go forward. Uh, and now we have to go into the next phase, which is to procure a company that will do it. Um, in terms of the last piece, which is for us to invest, look, if we would have invested when I when I suggested, we would have been up, you know, thirteen thousand uh, uh, dollars, you know, which is about twenty percent. But but the key is uh, there may be some state laws that are required to be passed that allow us to hold crypto. But the state government right now, based on some legislation that I've advanced, has imitated Wyoming's crypto uh, laws. And that is uh, sailing through the legislature and hopefully will pass and be signed into law this legislative session. Right. And we're looking at things like charter banks. 
um, that will allow people to deposit crypto into banks. So there's a lot of uh, innovation coming on the crypto space in Miami. We also want to be a, a mining hub for, for, for well, the world. But like something with a boring you know, company with, with Elon Musk, to do that, it's not easy. Like you have a high water table. I mean, are these things realistic? In terms of something like the boring company, you know, people, it's amazing how people advance obstacles without even doing the most basic research. One of the things that I said very, very clearly in my tweets when I came back from Las Vegas is, and, and you may be shocked to hear this, the Las Vegas tunnels mm-hmm. are bored underneath the water table. In other words, they're bored under the water. So, you know, people would just take a time and a minute to read my social media posts because I answer point by point the concerns that people have, like water table, which is a natural one that people say, oh, you know, Miami, the water table. Well, guess what? Las Vegas also has a water table. And guess what? The tunnels are built underneath the water table. So they're built underwater, right. just like they would be well, in Miami. There's absolutely no difference. I love that you talk about, you know, read my tweets, because listen, this is, you know, you've talked with Elon Musk, social media and becoming popular socially um, on platforms can really provide some momentum for whatever mission. Elon Musk has certainly proven, proven that out. So tell me about politically, how does this plan get more momentum if you get another term as mayor, you face re-election at the end of the year? Is a run for governor for Florida part of your bigger plan? in order to, you know, carry out your your hopes of creating, my, you know, putting making Miami a high-tech city? Well, listen, for me, uh, I, I hate to sound overly political in my answer, but I sort of take it one step at a time. Mm-hmm. And so for me, my, my singular focus is, is, you know, presenting a concrete vision for the future so that I am reelected. Uh, I was blessed to be elected by 86%. Uh, when I was elected in 2017, so I'm hoping uh, that I can maintain or grow on, on that uh, confidence that I have from my residents. After that, if I'm elected in November, um, I become and I assume the role of president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. So I'm president of all the mayors nationally beginning January 1st, uh, and I was selected by my peer mayors across the country. So that's a huge honor for me, and it's going to allow this Miami movement this moment that we've converted into a movement to hopefully become a template for how successful cities should be run and mm-hmm. the technologies that should be investing in and the kind of ecosystem and economy that all cities should be really fighting for and striving for. So that's my hope. Whatever happens from that point forward, uh, you know, it's in God's hands and uh, I'll be uh, very glad and very happy uh, to potentially consider other offices in the future, depending on the circumstances. Because just quickly, being governor could maybe help in a big way, right? Of course. I mean, you know, when you're when you when you're if any governor uh, of, of a state has a huge role in things that I consider to be critical, like education, for example, I think, you know, what we want to do in Miami is we want uh, equality of opportunity. We want to make sure that every child in our city has an opportunity to be successful. Uh, we call that Miami for everyone. And so if you're a governor of a state, one of the biggest things that you propose in terms of your budget is education spending. And I think one of the things that Florida should do is strive to be uh, the highest per capita spending state on education in in the United States. And that's something that we should have as a goal, because if we educate our children, we're giving them the best chance to be prosperous in a modern day economy. That's Francis Suarez, the mayor of Miami. Check out the story on him in the magazine this week by Bloomberg's Miami bureau chief, Jonathan Levin. Find it on newsstands, online and on the Bloomberg. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stanovec. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. Check out, too, our Bloomberg Business Week podcast, where you can hear the entire conversations of our guests featured in today's weekend show. Find that at Bloomberg.com, Apple, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take. It's available at Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Bloomberg Business Week, it's available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Have a great weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.